I'm Dr. Jill Weiner. I'm a white woman, a doctor, a meditation teacher, a tapping practitioner, a writer, and I'm an aspiring anti-racist, an identity which I must constantly strive towards, work on, and reevaluate. This podcast amplifies the powerful voices of women and men in all aspects of the anti-racist space, along with some of my own insights and explorations on topic ranging from healthcare to spirituality to criminal justice and beyond in order to provide a nuanced, educational, and honest examination of systemic racism and dominant culture. Before I start, I would like to do a land acknowledgement that this podcast episode is being recorded on the stolen Creek and Muscogee lands. Welcome to the show today. I am so excited to have Lacey Robinson here with me today. Lacey is the president and CEO of Unbound Ed and the chair of the board of Core Learning. As CEO, Robinson sets the organization's vision for transforming instruction for students at the margins. She is a former teacher, principal, and professional development specialist who has focused on literacy, equity, and school leadership for more than 25 years. Her life's work aims to help educators in school systems disrupt systemic inequities and all of their legacies in classrooms. As CEO of Unbound Ed, Robinson is responsible for overseeing Unbound Ed's health, sustainability, and future-driven vision for what grade-level, engaging, affirming, and meaningful teaching and learning can be. In 2022, she also oversaw the merger of Unbound Ed, Pivot Learning, and Core Learning under the Unbound Ed banner, creating the largest K-12 educator development organization in the country with an explicit, explicit focus on improving teaching and learning for underserved students. Robinson is a leading national voice on disrupting the racial and socioeconomic predictability of students' educational outcomes. She has been named to Forbes 2023 50 over 50 list, featuring female leaders who are creating their greatest impact at age 50 and beyond. Her new book, Justice Seekers, Pursuing Equity in the Details of Teaching and Learning, released in July 2023, is a love letter to teachers, inspiring us all to recognize that justice is found in the details of teaching and learning. She also frequently serves as a keynote speaker and is featured on Emily Hanford's 2022 Sold a Story podcast. She is a proud graduate of Florida A&M University and Teachers College, Columbia University. Lacey, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. I'm so excited to meet you and talk to you. Thank you for having me, Jill. I'm super excited for our conversation. I know. And I'm just like, I, I was telling you beforehand, I've just been really, really wanting to get more, um, dive more into the education space on the podcast and just feel so grateful that, that our paths have crossed. So, um, so I'd love to just get a sense of who you are and your, what, what brought you into education and what then brought you into doing the work you're doing in the education space. Yeah, well, <laughs> as you heard, I'm 50 now. So I feel like this, this, this is such a reflection <laughs> back on because time just zooms by. Uh, but I, when I think back, what originally got me interested in education, you know, I'm sure my family would tell you that um, probably from the onset, I was a natural born teacher, leader, um, probably hashtag Miss Bossy Pants. Uh, <laughs> uh, I would say that my first teaching bug bit me when I was um, having to repeat the first grade. I talk about this in Justice Seekers. Uh, my mother at the end of my first time around in first grade recognized that when she got the report card and saw that they were promoting me to second grade, 
that there was a real grave problem. Um, not only could I not read, I was still struggling to recognize letters, sounds, and was still honestly quite struggling to even write my name. Um, and even though I was a, a talker, you know, at that point, um, she herself uh, was just adamant that she was not going to move a child on um, that could not read. And so uh, she marched right up to the schoolhouse, not knowing I would say any of the edge speak, not even certain um, of what she was gonna ask was the right thing to do, but she demanded that they hold me back. Um, um, and I talk about this in the book as well because she had grown up with a mother who was illiterate. And, and so she knew firsthand what it looked like to be in the midst of a struggling reader. And so that second time around in first grade, getting the tutoring, getting the extra love from Miss Montgomery and Mrs. Littleton, I still remember their names, um, really produced in me the confidence, um, but also gave me a little bit of the tenacity to teach my grandmother. Because at that same time, my grandmother had um, someone from her religious community that was actually teaching her to read. And, um, and, and so I would apply what uh, Miss Montgomery and Miss Littleton was teaching me uh, when I was sitting next to my grandmother. And I just remember that feeling that she had as she was reading through the stories in her Bible. And I could just feel uh, the excitement, I guess, and the confidence. And so that's when the teaching bug, I would say, originally bit me. But, you know, time, space, and place, as I graduated, went on to college, I really thought I was either going to be a weather woman, <laughs> I really wanted to be like a newscaster, or an actress. Um, and my mother was like, mm. I really think I want you to find a profession. She joked with me and said, that it's going to give you a steady 401k. And like, <laughs> she's like, I really think you should try teaching. And so I entered Florida A&M as a freshman, as an elementary educator major. And from that point on, I was hooked. Um, theory, practice, um, volunteer hours that we had to start our freshman year in our in the school that was on the Florida A&M campus. It was a part of the Florida A&M University. They had a pre-K through 12 school. And I had to do volunteer hours there. And Miss Davison taught first grade. And from the moment I sat on the carpet with the kids, um, I just knew I had found my place at home. And so um, I became a forever teacher at that moment. That's so beautiful. And I love, I'm kind of hearing the role your mom played advocating for you and like mm -hmm. setting that as an example. And I don't know anything about the, the rest of the relationship with your mom, but like, she advocated for you. She wanted you to repeat first grade. And then I'm hearing also she advocated for you with teaching. And a lot of people that I talk to on the on podcast or otherwise, they got kind of forced into doing things they didn't want to do by parents or advisors because of whatever reason. And I love that like this was what you were meant to do and that her her um, advocating and her opinioning um, yeah. got you there. Yeah, yeah. I think it's I think that when you're in a child's life, you get to see parts of them that they don't always necessarily see. And I and I am forever grateful that 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 was her pushing, right? That that she saw that there was this natural born, you know, educator. And so she pushed for that. Yeah. I love that. So you kind of it sounds like you had a you had a journey as a educator, you had a journey as a um in administrating. Yeah. What brought you to bringing um, the the DEI work, the anti-bias work 
yeah education yeah so i think it was a combination of things um i grew up in um akron ohio uh as a young child it was dayton ohio and then probably around the fifth grade my mother moved us to akron ohio to be closer to her parents and you know ohio is really interesting um i sort of have a love-hate relationship with it because you know, at the time when I was in grade school, my sister and I pretty much integrated the neighborhood and, and the school. And it, it was tough. Um, but I th believe that my mother felt like, one, it was really pertinent. She always talks about how, you know, she really wanted to raise us in a neighborhood where it was more diverse. But unfortunately, at that time, there was a lot of white flight. And so what she noticed in the schools that were diverse was that uh, because of the white flight, the real estate had gone down, the schools were starting to decline. And she had no choice but to move us to predominantly white neighborhood because she felt like this is the best chance that my daughters have um, at a really high quality education. But I tell people all the time, I got schooled at school and I got schooled at home. You know, we would come home complaining about the kids calling us names and even the teachers not being nice and, and prejudiced. And my mother was just relentless and like, you know what? First of all, we know that what they're saying is not true. Uh, second of all, no one can stop you from learning. No one's going to stop you from learning. And once you learn, they can't take it away. And so you deserve to be right up front with everybody else. You deserve to be raising your hand and answering questions like everybody else. And she really pushed and prodded and prompted my sister and I that regardless of what people thought about us, we were going to walk in those rooms with our heads up high, uh, with our ponytails straight. Uh, and we were going to demand that they serve us like they serve everyone else. And so I think that was like the birth of it. My mother made sure that we went to predominantly white schools, but that we spent much of our free time around our family and friends. She got us involved in many different um, programs with many different groups. Um, I remember in middle school, she had this deal with me where she was like, you know what? I want you to be able to hang out with your friends, but you're also gonna volunteer at the National Urban League. You know, I want you to get involved with people that are involved in the community. She was a really big believer in giving back to the community. And I would say my maternal grandparents were the same way. And so I kind of grew up with that sort of running in the background. So by the time I got to my HBCU, which was another demand my mother had, she said, you spent your entire K-12 life in a predominantly white school. Any child of mine in this household will be going to a HBCU, a historically black university. She applied the same rules to my sister, even though my sister got into Georgetown as pre-med. She had my sister apply to Prairie View A&M. She went to Prairie View A&M. <laughs> so going to a HBCU also awakened in me the history, the legacy, the lenses, the smog that I had breathed in. Because even though I was being raised in a really rich, positive affirmation around being an African-American girl environment, I still breathed in the smog, you know, day to day in schools and in classrooms. I still breathed in the smog of not having a lot of stories or histories told from my cultural perspective and told from a single view. I still breathed in the smog of having history teachers who told me that slavery wasn't that bad, that Toni Morrison wasn't a prolific writer like Ernest Hemingway. And so breathing in that smog, as much as I heard the counter in that, it still affected me. So my, my track in HBCU at Florida A&M helps clear up some of that smog. My residency at Marva Collins Preparatory School really slid at home. Um, if a lot of folks don't know about Marva Collins, she was African-American woman, mother in Chicago, who got sick of her children coming home, being impacted by the way the Chicago public schools at the time were treating her children. 
saying that they didn't know enough or not exposing them to what she felt like were the foundational concepts and skills. And so she started her own school in her living room. The concept that she started in that living room actually morphed into private and charter schools. And so I got an opportunity to participate in one of those schools as a residence in Cincinnati, Ohio. And I got to tell you, walking into a second and third grade combined class with all African-American students, and they were reading Animal Farm, Animal Farm, which hadn't been introduced to until I was in ninth grade. It just solidified for me the possibilities and how those possibilities have been removed because of the experiences I had in K-12, but were definitely being solidified going through those various experiences. So diversity, equity, inclusion, equity, inclusion has always been in the background. Um, I was a second grade kindergarten, fifth grade teacher, became a, a professional developer from Montgomery County Schools in Maryland, early childhood, and then switched to the diversity, equity, inclusion team and spent two to almost three years doused in supporting a school system and developing their lens. So that's, it's been an amalgamation of all those things that brought me to where I am now at Unbound Ed and CORE, where we just know there are many roads to social justice. We choose the intersection of high quality materials, pedagogical content knowledge, and the equity that is needed to remove the predictability of student achievement by race, ethnicity, and social economic status. So I know that was a long story, but it was many roads that brought me there. <laughs> I'm like, keep talking. I want to hear all of it. Um, so there's there's a few, I'm, I'm seeing uh, in some of the work you do, there's a few like kind of terms uh, that I'd love to go into a little bit. I'd love to, if you could talk about what legacies, lenses, and layers is yes. slash are. Yep. So um, I really dive into this into the book Justice Seekers: Pursuing Equity in the Teaching in the Details of Teaching and Learning. Um, you know, in order to sufficiently develop what I call your antenna, to to sufficiently develop um, your innate mechanism to deter what could be policies, practices, and procedures that are creating barriers for students from various backgrounds. You know, you have to be able to look at and examine um, who we are as a nation. And I would even dare say who you are individually and certainly your profession through those legacies, which are the historical markers that we have in the United States that really tell the story of how we arrived in this very moment that we're sitting in right now. How are we the, one of the most powerhouse countries? One of the, some would even argue one of the youngest countries and we're still struggling with racist and bias policies, practices, and procedures. You know, we're still year after year having a news headlines where there are uh, bodies being laid out in the street that uh, just in the most um, sufficient way boil down to racist policies, practices, and procedures and viewpoints, you know, where we're living in a country where we want to um, have a revisionist history about our own legacy that makes us who we are as a magnificent and unique country, you know, and, and I would say uh, a leader in this world. And I believe that a biggest piece of that is that we have to understand the legacies that we come from. 
It's not about denying them. It's about recognizing them. It's about recognizing the barriers and the, and the slips of footholds that they've placed on different communities and people. We have to recognize how they formulated policies and procedures like redlining and segregation in schools. You know, we have to recognize that those legacies produced moments like the civil rights movement that played a role in the women's rights movement, that played a role in the abilities rights movement. You know, all of those things are who we are as a nation. And so we have to examine our legacies. Our layers are who we are as individuals. So our layers are your family tradition and values, maybe uh, the religion you grew up in, uh, the neighborhood and community that you grew up in. Was it only a community that was from a single dominant lens? Was it only community that didn't offer you experiences to other uh, races and ethnicities? Um, and the layers of like politics and media and that smog that I talked about that we inhale on a daily basis. Your legacies and your layers formulate your lenses. And whether you realize it or not, those lenses implicitly and explicitly get turned on and off with every person that you meet, every encounter that you have, every assumption that you make. We'd like to think that we're in a post-racial society, but we're not because we're still having to have conversations about what just took place in Alabama. We're still having to have conversations about um, the senseless killing of brown and black men and women. We're still having to have conversations about the way we treat immigrants in this country, language acquisitioners, uh, indigenous native first nation people. And, and so those layers and legacies and lenses are what we ask educators to examine as we're talking about the instructional core and the way that it gets disseminated to students in our classrooms. I'm so, I love that. And is, I'm, is there like a, a I'm, I'm, I'm gathering there's a framework that you provide those, the educators in order to examine those three things kind of, hmm? is that, is that probably, is that like, um, going to be something um, that non-educators are going to understand if you talk about it here? Is that kind of more like detailed? Yeah, I think, I think so. Because, well, first, when you examine your legacies, the historical markers, mm -hmm. when you, you take time out to examine your lenses and you really think about the lenses in which you, or I'm sorry, the layers that you've been doused in, and you think about the lenses in which you view the world, one of the things we ask educators and parents and community members to think about is our framework that's called GLEAM, uh, which is also, GLEAM has three chapters in Justice Seekers. It goes into way more detail than what I'll be able to in this time. But GLEAM stands for, is it grade level? Are your students being saturated in grade level work? Regardless of the missing prerequisites or foundational concepts and skills that they may walk into your schools and classrooms in. Is the work engaging? So is it rigorous? Does it, does it promote critical thinking and reasoning and discussion? But is it engaging from a cultural, linguistical, historical, and local context? Is it affirming? Is it affirming for the student academically? Is it affirming that they are becoming, have, uh, developing an academic identity that will carry them from college, career, and beyond? And is it affirming of who they are interpersonally, meaning that, are the learning theories, stories, 
uh, subjects, content matter, theories that you're placing them in from a single story white dominant lens. And is it meaningful? And meaningful, we pull straight out of, and I would say Glean sits, uh, uh, is, is held by the foundation that Gloria Ladson Billings built when she created culturally responsive uh, pedagogy. But is it meaningful in that are students being asked to look at what they're learning, the why they're learning through a social political lens, so they could quite possibly think about how does math, how does reading, how does writing play a role in making my community, my environment, this nation, our world a better place? And so we talk about GLEAM in our book as a framework that we ask all educators, community members, parents to think about the education of children and the legacies, layers, and lenses discussion help promote that. That's amazing. Thank you for clarifying that um, and uh, kind of not even just clarifying, but further further discussing that. Um, what are What are some of the like, well-intending mistakes maybe that you see educators making when they're like trying to make things better from a racial bias equity lens and getting it wrong. Mm -hmm. Well, I talk about the same mistakes and assumptions that I made, you know, when I, my first year uh, teaching was in uh, Georgia in a, in a suburb of uh, outside of Atlanta. And I taught at a school that was really diverse. And there was an insurgent of students that were from that, that were um, helms from Ecuador. Excuse me. And I made an assumption that in order to reach my students, in order to connect with my students, that I would have to learn Spanish and I would have to learn the Ecuadorian culture. And, and that just isn't true. Our kids come in not as empty vessels, right? They're being brought up in cultural context in their homes and the communities. And by simply asking questions to invite them into the lessons is how we invite in their cultural linguistic views. And I think a mistake that educators make are thinking that they have to be experts in students' cultural and ethnicity, and you don't. What you have to be is ready to be open for them to be invited. And one of the stories that I talk about in Justice Seekers, and this was just so obvious to me, was one day I was making an observation. I was a professional developer um, for uh, the largest school system here in Maryland, and I was in the early childhood sector, and I was asked to go in and observe some kindergarten classrooms. And I talk about this little boy, Mitchell, in my book. This is the first time that it really resonated with me that educators were um, implicitly making assumptions about, in particular, um, African-American children. I was in a classroom. The teacher was reading a book aloud. And there was a little boy who was Vietnamese who offered up, it was a three Billy Goats gruff, who offered up uh, the Vietnamese word for goat. And, the v and he was trying to explain that he knew what a goat was because his grandmother um, in Vietnam had goats. And so he offered up the word for grandmother in Vietnamese. He offered up the word for goat. And the teacher at that time invited him uh, to be a part of the lesson. She asked him to teach the class what the word uh, in Vietnamese for goat meant. They practiced saying it. She allowed him to talk about the goats that his grandmother had. Well, no less than like two, three minutes later, there was a, a young African-American boy. I'll never forget. He had the slickest mohawk I'd ever seen. Uh, and he was sitting in class. And as she was reading the large book, Three Billy Goats Gruff, she gets to the refrain, trip, trap, trip, trap. And he starts repeating it out loud. Well, the first time he does it, she gives him this stern look. Like, what are you doing? And he kind of shrugs his shoulders. She does it a second time and he does it again. And this time she goes, Mitchell, shh. 
And he kind of like looks around the room. Then he does it a third time. And she gives Mitchell this warning. And I saw his whole demeanor change. He shrunk into the carpet. He started looking down and he started picking at the carpet. And in that moment, as an African-American woman, what I recognized what Mitchell was doing is what we did at church, what we did at movie theaters, what we did at private gatherings. And that's called a response. You know, when you join in with the speaker or the author, it's, a, it's an African-American tradition. And I knew that Mitchell might not have known it was call a response, but I knew it was part of his community, cultural context. And so when I had a moment to step aside with the teacher later on in the day, and I asked her, you know, are you familiar with call and response? Are you familiar with that African-American? Because I saw that you allowed the, the little boy to uh, enter his cultural context in the, why wouldn't you allow Mitchell? And she very quickly quipped, huh, I never thought that African-Americans had their own culture. I just assumed their culture was our culture. Oh. Now I will tell you, this was very many years ago, but I will say this, that is under the same context that we hear people say, I'm colorblind. You know, race is a construct that we did not make up. However, a person's cultural, ethnic, linguistic background, historical background is a part of who they are. And one of the disservices that we do in education is that we don't make it a part of a student's learning track. If all the stories you ever hear are from a white dominant lens, if we erase all the stories about Rosa Parks, Martin Luther King, Garrett Morgan, uh, uh, Mae Jamison, you know, if we erase the, the stories of our um, indigenous First Nation folks, and not just the stories talking about the Trail of Tears, but who they were as all agricultural experts and spiritual leaders, and, and if we erase all those stories, we boil it down to a single story dominant lens. And I'm sure you know this, Jill, coming across your research. When you start to extract who a person is, you start to affect their interpersonal ability. And when someone doesn't think they're good enough, when someone doesn't think they're counted, their academic identity starts to become affected. Their worthiness starts to become affected. And so I think that as educators, we're not professionally developed enough to recognize when those implicit and explicit moments come in, in and out of our classrooms, because we don't always take time out to think about ourselves and our systems and how they may be giving those messages over. That is so powerful. Um, and I'm just kind of hearing your story of what that teacher said. And I have no doubt that this happens all the time. Like it's like, it's it's like my mouth, my jaw dropped because no one else can see that happening. And I'm I am sure that this is something that like is an everyday occurrence all over the place that this this mis miscuing or misunderstanding or ignoring uh the cultural relevance of of students so um and can i give a fair warning it's not just white teachers i did it as a woman of color i watch other teachers do it who come from different cultural and linguistic contexts we all breathe the smog i really want to make that point historically it's been white teachers, students of color, but we all breathe the smog. Um, thank you for that. Thank you for that. Cause I think um, it it really, um, I have a hard time with words acting. <laughs> I'm just sort of, I'm like <laughs> perimenopause, it's happening. I can't find words anymore. So I'm not even gonna edit this out of this episode because there's nothing to be ashamed of. 
but I feel like it um, kind of takes some of the stigma away of admitting that these things are happening by acknowledging that, as you're saying, the smog impacts everyone. And these are, these are things that everyone can learn from. Um, white, sorry. I'm sorry. I think that white privilege has allowed it to be a norm for white folks, if that makes sense. Yeah. I think that, um, and I don't say that to diminish it and its effect. I say that because I myself had my own internalized racism messages that I had to move through. And so I just, as myself, I can't speak for anybody else. I would just um, respectfully submit to folks that um, everyone breathes the smog. Thank you. Um, So I know that you, so your work started in like education, education, and uh, we discovered before the show, I did but no, not you didn't. We discovered together. I learned that you also bring this work into other spaces, um, one of which is uh, very near and dear to my heart, which is the healthcare and, and medicine space. So I'd love to hear how you use this work to help um, healthcare professionals or maybe specifically doctors recognize their bias and how their bias might be impacting it's is impacting their patient care. Yeah, I mean, I think certainly like everybody else we saw um, the sort of wave rise. And what I mean by wave is like everyone's awareness around um, our um, civil rights unrest when it comes to folks of color um, right after George Floyd. And I think that all industries um, at that time, at at, at the high tide time, because we are certainly now, the tide is going back out. uh, We, I think at the high tide time, a lot of professions were stopping to examine uh, what perhaps could be some of their um, barriers, some of their policies, practices, procedures that were um, uh, either denying access to folks of color or not acknowledging um, how um, access uh, is made um, equally or or made with uh, equality in mind. Let me say that. And so um, I had a, a group of uh, um I would say um, global health physicians. Uh, these are physicians that mostly were in the gynecological, urogynecological field. My sister's a urogynecologist. And so um, they had uh, heard that I had done diversity, equity, and inclusion work and were very interested in starting a book study. Um, they began reading the book Medical Apartheid and I and I was the facilitator of that learning. And, and what we did in that moment was we, we didn't just read through the Medical Apartheid book But um, I wanted us to examine frameworks that help us first and foremost have courageous conversations. Courageous conversations are the output of that examination of the layers, legacies, and lenses, right? And Glenn Singleton has done just a magnificent job in giving us the four agreements um, and giving us frameworks um, to have those courageous conversations in. And so we leaned on the courageous conversation frameworks we then uh, started looking at the, the legacies in, in gynecology. And of course, the um, Anarcha, Betsy, and Lucy story, which Anarcha, Betsy, and Lucy to me are, are really the, um, I call them the foremothers, but we know historically that there were many, many, many enslaved African women. We know for a fact that there were um, women um, from um, the um, from Ireland, from the Irish diaspora that were affected, but that the but that the the gynecological practice was built upon their backs, 
was built through their pain. Um, and, and I would say not just them, but when you look at the way that the enslaved African was used um, by physicians during that time who weren't even necessarily specialists, right? Like I remember learning about um, this enslaved African who went by the name of, I believe his name was Jim Brown. And unfortunately, he got sold to a physician who started out as a dentist, and then he was a pediatrician, and then he became a general specialist. And he decided to use um, the enslaved African, uh, Jim Brown, who later on wrote about this when he um, uh, escaped slavery and actually moved to England, to the UK. But he decided to use him as an experiment to see the threshold of pain that one, he could endure, and two, if he could come up with some sort of medicine that would eradicate that. And when you read through the story of the torture that this enslaved African went through, he would drop him in a hole. He would essentially set the hole on fire and essentially allow this enslaved African to burn. He would pull him out just at the point of either heat exhaustion or near death and give him pills that, quite frankly, the first time were just flour and water. And, and after he would recover through the heat exhaustion, he began to say like, well, see, I created this pill that can help with heat exhaustion that'll eventually help the slaves stay longer in the field that then will help with the productivity. But we know that that enslaved African's body is what was used as the original pain trope that is now applied to people of color. And so the physicians and I began having these discussions and talking about how that legacy, that historical marker, along with the lenses, that are built out of media and articles and words that are passed about the pain trope, the pain resistant trope of a black woman or a black male or a brown woman or a brown male is actually something that still is occurring now. You and I both know that there's research around the level of pain that is being asked for brown and black people to endure, how women who are going through the birth process that are brown and black aren't believed about their level of pain that they're having either before, during, or after birth. And so without the study of that legacy, without the study of those layers, without the study of your lenses, you could implicitly be adding to that pain-resistant trope as you're seeing patients. I personally think I went through it. I had a hip replacement last year. Prior to hip replacement, I can't tell you how many physicians that I saw who played it off. Oh, you can't be in that much pain. Oh, you can't be in that much pain. You know, I could, one could make the argument it's because I'm a woman, because women also have that pain resistant trope. We're always in hysteria. And then one could apply that I'm an African-American woman. So the tendencies you see are sort of the same in education and medicine, although the legacies might be different. Yeah. Um, it's, I mean, it sounds like this is so widely applicable and, you know, just my own personal experience. I've talked about this before openly, like looking back at the way that I practice medicine and I know it isn't just white doctors. I think it's, I think it's the Western health medical system, our medical education, our training on top of all the other stuff, but the yep. way that we are trained to approach our patients, the way we're trained to, you know, all of it brings us to this place where we are re reenacting a lot of the, I, I don't even know the right word, but like, right, right. Cause my word finding issues, but kind of reenacting a lot of the, a lot of the problems. Oh yeah. It's a regeneration. It's a re 
of it. It's a, uh, you know, I was astounded in my research that, well, you know, this as a, you might've come across this as a medical student that, you know, so you would argue, a doctor would argue that if you were to cut open two human beings, right, of two different ethnicities, essentially you're looking at hearts, kidneys, you, if, if you remove the skin, right, I had an opportunity to go and look at cadavers and all of that, and all you saw was the insides, would you be able to tell if it was a black person or a white person, right? Would you be able to tell uh, if, the, if this was a lungs of a, of, a, of, a, of a black person or it was a lungs of a white person, right? But when you look at some of the um, way that the medical field was built, like I know that there used to be this study about pelvises, right? And there was that whole type that the pelvises were broken down by um, the African pelvis, the Asian pelvis, the Caucasian pelvis. And, and, and it used to say that like, um, you know, that certain pelvises were better for working and holding babies while other pelvises were, you know, and these were actually real adages placed in medical books, right? Um, when you look at the, um, what's the, the VBAC calculator where they determine whether or not a woman is going to go, who's maybe had cesarean, should go back to vaginal birth. Oh, right. I don't, I don't know oh. the specifics just because I'm not in that specialty, but. Yeah, but the, but the onset of that was built around the viewpoint of, the ability of African-American and brown and black women being able to fluctuate back and forth. Race was actually considered in those calculations, right? When, you know, people make the argument all the time, race is a construct that was developed, right? It was a construct that was developed by man. And that certainly if we looked at our DNA track, we might be closer in DNA than my neighbor who's African-American. You know, so biology, it's like this, it's like this counterintuitive message that doctors get that, that implicitly along with media, along with, you know, our nation's, I would say cultural lens, that it's a no wonder that you boil down to when you're meeting one-on-one -on -one with a patient that you don't understand that all those things are actually playing a role in the background and the assumptions you know, in your lenses, in the way that you're viewing the patients, much like the way we say that women are viewed, right, in medicine. Yeah. yeah. Um, I'm just, yeah, <laughs> I'm just like, I'm sighing because I want to, I want to keep talking forever and ever and ever. Um, <laughs> thank you so much for sharing your, the work you do, your frameworks, how they're applied in education, how they, they can be applied in healthcare and um, clearly can be applied in so many other spaces. Um, can you share um, as we're wrapping up how people can like find you and you know your your book where your book is available and you know websites and services you offer and all of those things? Absolutely. So our organization can be found at unboundedorg uh, that's capital U N B O U N D capital E D dot org. Um, you can also find us on Facebook, Instagram. Um, and then I, the book justice seekers pursuing equity and the details of teaching and learning. You can find it at any book outlet entity from Amazon to Barnes and Nobles to um, Goodreads to anywhere. We're noticing uh, uh, bookshops, small and large, uh, are either carrying it through their websites or in person. Um, uh, I even have folks in Australia that are buying the book, so it's traveling internationally. Um, and certainly, if you go to our, our website, unboundedorg you can click on the QR code that will take you straight to the link of the book. 
you can also go to our uh, for-profit subsidiary, Core Learning, to learn more about the services that they offer there. I'm on Facebook, Instagram. Um, I guess you can't say Twitter anymore. <laughs> at Ms. Ms. Lacey Robinson um, and also at unbounded.org. Amazing. Thank you so much um, for joining me today um, and for, for um, everything that you shared and congratulations on the book. That's yeah. exciting. Everyone should go and buy that. And it's, it's not, I mean, it's for educators and I'm also hearing that it's not just for educators um, and also medical people who are educators too. A lot of us in, in the work that we do, um, if we're involved in training. So thank you again. I really appreciate everything that you're doing. Thank you so much for having me. Hi there. Thank you so much for listening. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Conscious Anti-Racism. Please be sure to follow or like us wherever you find your podcasts and also consider leaving a rating or review. You can follow Conscious Anti-Racism on Instagram and Twitter at Jill Wiener, MD, J-I-L-L-W-E-N-E-R-M-D. And please check out our Conscious Anti-Racism book on Amazon.